The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, ending with verse 26. I, the preacher who have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all of that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool yet will be a master of which, will, which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun, 
This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which, which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his works is a vexation. Even in the night of his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. So the last time I preached, I was in 1 Peter chapter 3. I opened up the commentary in, uh, in that, uh, for that passage, and the first thing it said is, this is the most difficult passage you'll ever have to preach in the New Testament. So then today, uh, we are into the most longest passage in all of Ecclesiastes. We know longer one that uh, Justin will have to preach. Uh, I'll be preaching the longest one, and I think I'm getting a theme here in terms of every time they ask me to preach. So thank you very much. So to prepare yourself for the longest uh, section in Ecclesiastes, if you have a Bible there, you'll want to just open it up right in the middle. You just kind of open it up in the middle. You'll probably find the Psalms. You're in the right neighborhood. You go over to Proverbs, the next uh, neighbor over, and then right after Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes. It's a little shorter book, and you will find exactly what you, you, what you need. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God for help because we'll need it. Father, thank you. We just said, thanks be to God. And it is true. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us in the dark, but rather you have given us your word, the light, the light of your life, the light of what uh, brings meaning to life. And so we're thankful, Father, for your word, but we're also thankful for your Holy Spirit, whom we need to take what is written here and to bring it to life into our lives. Because, Father, we're all coming in here, uh, we admit to one another on different circumstances and situations this morning, and you have a message for each of us. Um, so please be gracious and merciful to us. We are thankful that you are a God who is. Uh, slow to anger and long in, in mercy and kindness. And so we pray, continue to be merciful and kind to us as we come to your word. We thank you uh, for what you'll be doing. And we pray these things in Christ's name who made all of this possible. Amen. Well, it is a strange moment in time when you come to realize that statistically, you have less time in front of you than behind you. I've come to that point, unless I'm going to live more than 105 years. <laughs> like most of you here, the majority of my life has been oriented around the, the future. For me, it was to go to college and then get a degree, get my first job, get married, move up in the company, have a family, buy a house, move up in the company, travel maybe around the country, buy a bigger house, Move up in the company, 
travel maybe even around the world, retire in safety and security. Now, we are oriented early in life in this way, uh, and many times we hear an adult will ask us, what do you want to be when you grow up? I remember one time my parents asking me this question when I was around 10 years old, and I answered, well, I want to be an engineer. Proudly, they replied, well, what kind of engineer? A little confused by that question, I simply said, you know, an engineer. A mechanical engineer? Electrical engineer? A chemical engineer? I didn't know what in the world they were talking about. So I said the only kind of engineer I ever knew, a train engineer. All I knew about engineers was that guy that you'd wave to while the train was going by, and you could feel the, kind of the rumble of that great big engine of which he was in control of, and you could, you could hear it and its loudness, and you could see the power going by. And so as a 10-year-old, I envisioned, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to, train, I want to uh, control one of those great big powerful engines. I want to be a train engineer. That's what I envisioned. What I didn't envision, what I didn't picture myself being, is a headmaster. You know, what is that? Harry Potter series with Professor Albius Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, headmaster of the Hogwarts, was still two decades into the future. Headmaster. And growing up in Colorado, I certainly wasn't plotting on how I was going to escape that dreary place (laughs) for some more exotic place like (laughs) Iowa. But there has come a point, points of time when your life isn't turning exactly out like you envisioned And there's that quiet voice that asks, what is this thing called life? What's this all about? Now, most of us consider that for a moment, and then we get on with life, figuring the answer is the same as it has always been, and that is to look to the future. You know, I just need a new car, a new position, a new relationship. A new location, maybe a new degree. Pride, we we think we've got it all covered. Uh, Some of us have considered this for a moment, and then we just ran, ran out of fear. Fear that we would not be able to come to a satisfying answer. Fear that we might be wasting our life. Fear uh, that we will ask, it'll be asking too much of us. Fear. And so we ran to our favorite escape. We drowned our, out that question with entertainment or sports or exercise or, or with drugs and or alcohol. Running to sex. And for some, we are faced with this question, and we just ignore it out of laziness. 
Some prideful, some fearful, some lazy, but all have that nagging question in our mind. See, look at at Solomon's provocative uh, statements there in verse 13. He's really trying to provoke us. I applied my heart, chapter 1, verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under the heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Since you are born into this world, you are busy with. There is a program behind your consciousness. There is something running behind the the screen of your life, and it is this question. What is the meaning of life? Or maybe you would ask it, what is my purpose? Or how do I make sense of the things I see and feel and hear and experience between life and death? And notice how he describes that business. It's an unhappy business. There will come a point in time when, if you haven't done it yet and considered these questions, you realize that you don't have as much future as you thought you had, that life in a real sense is locked in. It might be your health. It might be your age. It might be your income. It might be a bad decision that has long-term consequences. It might be your race. It might be all of those. And there's no way to escape that simple but not simplistic question What is this thing called life? What's it all about? What gives it meaning? And so it seems that Solomon has come to that place in time. As you might have presumed correctly so, this this great philosopher of life opens up uh, and he realizes he's looking now back on life, that he's made decisions, that he's worked out life, and and now he has to look back on it. And now he's proposing the question, what is the meaning of life? Because his life is locked in. And so in pursuit of the answer to this question, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon, the great philosopher of life, opens up uh, his lab notes for all of us to to see on three experiments that he he makes. He he had tested uh, three hypotheses that every generation considers might provide meaning, might make life worthwhile. And so this is where he's going to go. Uh, He's going to start with, first of all, giving his credentials, and then he's going to provide for us the experiments that he he is giving out here, and, and then he's going to finish with his conclusion on how he might find meaning. So let's first of all look at Solomon's uh, credentials. And the first thing he does is he presents uh, presents his effort. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, it's important to, to note that, first of all, he is a king, so he has all the resources he needs. 
He gets to choose how he uses his time. He has financial and material resources necessary to pursue his priorities. He gets to choose how he works his day. And he can truly test the hypotheses in ways we could uh, never test them. And thus, look what he says. I applied, verse 13, my heart. There's, this is no quick Google search. This isn't a run down to the Barnes and Noble and to the self-help uh, section. No, he's giving himself. He's giving his heart over to seek and to search out. It's methodical. A methodical searching like we would for a lost child in the woods. And the means is he's using there, notice, wisdom. By wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of an application of principles for practical purposes. It goes beyond just an accumulation of facts and theory. No, it goes beyond that and makes use of those facts and theories in very practical ways. So wisdom is something God's word puts much value upon, great value upon. The type of literature that we are using here, that we have here, is the wisdom literature. It's in the neighborhood of the wisdom uh, books. And it's in that neighborhood that we find in Proverbs where we read these words. My son, give your ear, attentive ear, to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. understanding. Seek it like silver and gold. Search for it as for hidden treasures. So what is Solomon seeking and searching out by wisdom? Verse 13, all that is done under heaven. Under heaven. We are first introduced to this concept back in verse 3 in a synonymous phrase, under the sun, a key phrase for really understanding all of Ecclesiastes and the purpose of Ecclesiastes, for it's an expression that you'll find 29 times. It is viewing this world as if it all existed, that all that existed was what was found under the sun, or in other words, under the sky. It's viewing and living in this world in a material way. It's only acknowledging what is real by what one sees and hears and tastes and feels. It's defining life by the bookends of birth and death. It is viewing and living apart from, it's viewing and living life apart from God. So, all of Solomon's experiments to determine where to find meaning will be conducted with this materialistic worldview. And unlike most of us, he commits his resources with great effort to this endeavor. Effort and credentials, education. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Acquired, acquisition of educational, uh, of, of wisdom, of education. And then his final credential is experience. Look at the end of verse 16. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he's able to do 
what none of us here have the ability to do. He has the resources, and not only does he have the resources, he has the willingness to put himself into this, give his whole heart over to these hypotheses that he's going to be setting up and testing them to see if they hold water for bringing meaning to life. And so what we're going to do is we'll return back to his thoughts here, these poetic sections after we look at his experiments. So experiment number one, Solomon's experiments. First, it's the pursuit of pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's begin at verse 1. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So here's his hypothesis. Life is about enjoying oneself through the pursuit of pleasure. Verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, keep in mind that he's careful to say next, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So his attempt at pursuing pleasure wasn't without limits. A controlled pursuit of pleasure. He pursued a pleasure without being consumed by pleasure. And this is important within the context of the experiment because most of us will agree that a life of total dissipation, uh, dissipation, uh, to pursue pleasure to excess and ultimately to one's destruction. Most of us would agree that's foolish. We would say there's no meaning in that kind of lifestyle. But what about controlled pleasure? Where we pursue it carefully apart from a life, apart from a life with God. Well, he pursued pleasure within limits, controlled also by a constructive pursuit of pleasure. See, continue on there in in verse 3. He says, and how to lay hold on folly. And so this this is harmless fun, or maybe we like creative fun, or even constructive uh, enjoyment. We could think of the pursuit of a hobby, or a sport, or an activity. Solomon had all the means to chase after whatever activities he wanted to. And why did he do this? Well, look at the end of verse 3. Till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Yeah, life is short. Life is short when measured against history and shorter even more when measured against eternity. So what should we do in this short life? If the resource of time is limited, then what is the best use of my time? So maybe constructive pursuits. Perhaps projects that are not just utilitarian, but beautiful. Look at verses 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I may set myself pools from which to water the forest of growing, of growing trees. See, most of the things I build, they last about three years. Not many things last 30 years, less 300 years. Very rare that something still exists 3,000 years, and yet Solomon's great works are still in existence today, and some of them are still being used today 3,000 years later. Constructive pursuit of pleasure. Pleasure. 
which in the day required human power. So verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And so it is obvious that in the pursuit of pleasure, one must have resources. Solomon had it. Continue on there in verse 7. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Gold was so plentiful in Solomon's day that he actually had 500 shields uh, made out of gold, beaten gold. All of Solomon's drinking vessels... They were made of gold. The writer of 1 Kings says, none were of silver, none, sorry, were of silver because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. So he goes on, Solomon does, in verse 8, I got singers, both men and women. Solomon pursued the enjoyment of music. And then continue on verse 8, many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. The callous pursuit of pleasure. See, the primary purposes of concubines in ancient times were to increase one's prestige and presence through the siring of many children. And of course, the seemingly, you would also have prestige and presence to indulge in sexual pleasure. See, it's hard to fathom uh, what Justin shared with us from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, and that is that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know, that number just doesn't seem possible for one, one man. How could a man acquire that many women? Is that even possible? Consider his reality. <laughs> he had uh, no resource constraints. He had all authority. He had the financial resources. He had the material resources. So he had everything that he needed to take care of every one of those women. But then the question is, how can a man really in good conscience have that many women? How could he be callous to that kind of pursuit of women who are equally made in the image of God? Oh, wait. My mistake. He's pursuing pleasure under the sun, apart from any recognition of God. And thus, people are simply objects. People are simply resources to pursue one's pleasure. So if that's the case, if people are simply objects for one's pleasure, and you, if you have access to thousands of women and sufficient resources to make ac that access possible to get these women, most likely you would acquire that many women. Millions are doing it today. Consider our pornographic world. If you have enough financial resource to have the internet come into your home, then you have access to thousands and thousands and thousands of images. 
men today easily exceed Solomon's numbers. So verse 9, he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, so that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found no pleasure in all, uh, so for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Now, there's a byproduct of Solomon's experiments, and it was this discovery, and that there is a reward for all his toil. He did find some reward for his, his, day, his day job. The pursuit of pleasurable activities. There is something to be said for enjoying pleasure as a means of reward for hard work. But ultimately, what is his conclusion? Well, the experiment is bookended by these words. Back to chapter, uh, back to verse one at the end there. He says, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? And then down to verse 11. And then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, vanity, it is like a vapor. It is like that, that breath that we, we give out on that cold day. It is short-lived. It is elusive. You can't save it for later. And it's mind-numbing repetitive. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. See, Solomon is taking up the theme that Justin pointed out last week, going back to that question in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is life apart from God. The word gain is net profit. So when you take all the expense that goes into pleasure, he says there is no gain or net profit for pleasure pursued in life uh, apart from God. Pleasure is like a vapor. You have pleasure for a moment, and then it's gone. It is elusive. Reality rarely meets expectations. And even if your experience of pleasure is better than you expected, you can't save it for later. And it is unrelenting. When it fades, all you can think about is getting more. Solomon comes to the conclusion that the pursuit of pleasure does not bring meaning apart from a life with God. Well, how about the pursuit of wisdom apart from God? Here's his, his hypothesis. Life is about living well through the pursuit of wisdom. See, Solomon took up the experiment 
of looking at wisdom and then folly in verse 12. He identifies himself as kind of this paragon, this model of excellence for this question. So no one else, he says, is going to really to exceed his work, his experimentation. His conclusions have universal applicability. So look at verses uh, 13 and 14. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In the pursuit of wisdom, under the sun, removing God from the equation, yeah, there's value. There's value in life. YouTube confirms this. For us in those series of fail videos, where the majority of the people are just being fools, captured on video for all to see in the world. And, you know, I don't know how many more uh, crotch crunches or uh, face plants I can take. <laughs> yeah. Solomon says there is value. There is value in life to pursue wisdom apart from God. But... No value in death. Look at the end of verse 13. Uh, excuse me, verse 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Look at the end of verse 16. How the wise dies just like the fool. Just take a 10-minute stroll right over there. The cemetery. Names are recorded on stones in order to preserve them as long as possible. But in the end, you will discover that they are just names. Who they were, what they accomplished, whether they were wise in their life under the sun or fools under the sun, you'll not know. Death erases whatever pursuit of wisdom gained, whatever works one accomplished for wisdom, whatever lectures were given, whatever books were written, gone. So Solomon writes, verse 17, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and the striving after wind. So pleasure fails, wisdom fails. How about the pursuit of hard work? In the life apart from God. So here's the hypothesis life is about finding financial security through the pursuit of hard work. 
Perhaps, perhaps there is gain. Perhaps there's a gain in working hard and accumulating much so that not only can we enjoy a little pleasure out of our toils, but even if we don't get to fully enjoy the pleasures out of our toils, we can at least pass it on. We can pass on a legacy, a financial legacy to our heirs. Perhaps if we leave a financial legacy where our children can start where we left off, then there is a profit. Perhaps there's a profit after all. Oh, no. No, Solomon says, even before he starts, look what he says there, verse 18. I hated all my toil. This is the second time he's used this word, hates. If life is measured only by birth and death, if life is measured by only what we see under the sun, then we too will come to that same conclusion somewhere along the way. I hated all my toil, verse 18, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. He will be a master for all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. According to the Williams Group, a wealth consultancy company, 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation, 90% by the third generation. All that toil vaporized in a moment. So he comes to the end of his experiments. He has tested his hypotheses, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of hard work, code phrase, under the sun, that is, that is a life apart from God. Is there meaning? And he says, no. Back to chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And then he quotes a proverb, verse, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. The crooked, the crooked refers to a problem that cannot be solved. Lacking refers to not having all of the information or data to solve a problem. So if you're only working off with a materialistic world and within the scope of birth to death, then there is no answer to the question of meaning. All you gain from wisdom under the sun is frustration and sorrow. Again, he turns to a Proverbs, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the more you try to make sense of the world, the more frustrating it gets. And the more you learn about the world and what goes on in it, the more you discover how broken it is and the depth of sorrow that is found behind every door and in every life. The hypothesis needs to change. Since all worldly endeavors are futile under the sun, Life apart from God. Perhaps we ought to look above the sun. Life in relationship to God. So here's Solomon's new hypothesis. 
life with God. As I was working on this message, I debated how to get your attention at the beginning. And I thought about starting this way. If you want your coffee to taste better, if you want your enjoyment of music to be richer, if you want your cooking to be tastier, if you want your work to have more impact, if you want your climbing to be more thrilling, I'm doing that for my son. He's in Chattanooga. He loves to climb. Hi, son. There we go. (laughs) If you want all of those things, then absorb Solomon's new hypothesis. It's going to contain these elements. First element of the hypothesis. Seek enjoyment in God's gifts. Seek enjoyment in God's gifts. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So now the question is, what are the gifts? Well, look there again. This is from the hand of God. So what is this? Well, this is finding enjoyment in your toil. That's a gift to you. God says, I'm giving you a gift, and is that you find enjoyment in your toil. There is a place to find enjoyment in our labors. There is something to be said about working hard in order to play hard. He even hinted that at verse, verse 10. There is something to be said about looking for work that satisfies you. There is something to be said about pursuing wisdom, understanding knowledge, and applying it. There is something to be said about not just saving for a rainy day, but actually spending your money. The gift is finding enjoyment in your toil. Recognizing this, it is, look there again, it is from the hand of God. There is meaning simply recognizing that God is the creator, the great gift giver. Secondly, what other gifts do we get? Material things are gifts. When he says eat and drink... He's not only speaking of literal food and drink, but in the Old Testament and the Near Near Eastern ancient literature, it speaks of all material things of life. See, work was given to humanity in the state of perfection, in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, before sin entered the world, out of the ground the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Beauty. And good is good and is good for food. He said it's good for food. So it tastes beauty and tastes. And then we find poetry before the fall as a means of communication, possibly set to music. Relationships. It is not good for man to be alone. And we have marriage and sex. The physical enjoyment of another within a covenant bond. Solomon discovered that there is meaning and purpose and enjoyment in relationship to God as the creator, the great gift giver. And in his new hypothesis, there is an element of seeking enjoyment in God's gift. And the third gift is this. Today. Today is a gift. 
Look at verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? No one. The moment of life is a gift. Enjoy the moment. It was Job who discovered and wrote in his wisdom book these words, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It is James in the New Testament wisdom book uh, which writes, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Hmm. Sounds a lot like Solomon. But many people do like Solomon in his experiments of life apart from God and postpone enjoyment to sometime in the future. Many people hate their work today, and instead of thanking God for that work today and finding good in it today, they postpone that and they wait until Friday, and then they say, thank God it's Friday. Possibly we need to be saying, thank God it's Monday. Many students fail to enjoy what they study today. I know, headmaster. They look forward to what that will produce for them in the future, ultimately graduation. Some don't graduate. And so an element in Solomon's new hypothesis is seek enjoyment in God's gifts, but not as an endpoint, but as a pointer to another element, his greatest gift. So what's that? God's pleasure in you. Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This, this part of the sinner giving the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So the greatest gift is God's pleasure in you. But the problem is, no one here has pleased God. No one has always lived as in the present as a great gift. No one has enjoyed his material gifts and not fallen in love with the gifts rather than the gift giver. No one has enjoyed their toil, toil, and complained. No one's done that. We've all missed the mark. Sinners who are set on the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. He calls the sinner's life vanity and a striving after a wind. A breath here and gone, both his or her work and life. No one has pleased God except one. 
It was the father who said of his son, Jesus Christ, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, my loved one, with whom my soul is well pleased. The greatest gift of which all other lesser gifts point to, the taste of that first sip of coffee in the morning, box cello suite number one in G, the smell of spring rain on a, on a warm pavement, the swoosh of a perfect shot through the nets in a basketball, the interlocking of your love's fingers, and the gifts can go on and on. All of these gifts point to the greatest gift ever, the person of Jesus Christ. So now I want you to apply this message. Enjoy the moment. I'm going to read for you Hebrews chapter 10. Just enjoy these words. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Just enjoy. Put down your pencils and pens or whatever you're doing. Think for, wake up. <laughs> Don't worry about time, just for a moment. Enjoy. When Christ came into the world, he said this. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, speaking to his father, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. Let me read that again. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will, then the Hebrew writer writes, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that when Christ came, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sinners. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering of sin. No longer sinners. Christ is the one who pleased the Father. Christ's death on the cross brought pleasure to the Father for what it did for sinners like us. So that just as he's now written through this new covenant, his laws, uh, a love for him on our hearts. Oh, yeah, now it sounds like verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and 
joy. So the new hypothesis, oh no, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not a hypothesis anymore, it's a theory. It's a theory. A hypothesis is untested. It's an untested idea. Theory is tested. The resurrection turned that hypothesis into a theory, into a reality. Since all, so here it is, here it is. Since all worldly endeavors are futile, seek enjoyment in God's greatest gift, of which all other good gifts point to Jesus Christ. That's it. Yes. So the key, the key to purpose, the key to meaning, the key to enjoyment of all of God's gifts is to enjoy them in relationship to the greatest treasure, knowing Jesus Christ. Apart from God, you will never be able to enjoy life as God intended. So look to Jesus as your greatest gift and thus enjoy all the lesser gifts. Father, thank you. Wow. This is a depressing message, Father, at the beginning. Really bad. <sighs> but as you do, just when it looks like it can get no worse, you turn it upside down and bring hope and life to us sinners. Father, we thank you. It is not by mistake that you set up this table of which we feel some bread in our hands, of which we taste it. Possibly, Father, we'll smell a little bit of the juice or the wine. We see one another. Father, a good gift is this, the Lord's Supper. To remind us of these to remind us of the greatest gift, and that is your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we take uh, this bread and as we take the juice or the wine, Father, we are reminded again that our meaning in life, our purpose of life, that we have purpose, that we have meaning, that our jobs mean something, that our cooking means something, that the changing the diapers means something, that life means something because we have Christ. All these good gifts point to him. So we thank you for our Lord and Savior as we take together this Lord's Supper. Thank you for it. Thank you for the good gifts of life that you have given to us. Thank you for this moment, for it's all we have. And so we give you thanks. Bless you. We praise you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who has made this moment possible. Amen.